uh, I'm Thank going you, to. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our next speaker. I'm Amit Arbunay from University of Kentucky, and uh, where we started a cardio-oncology program. So it gives me immense pleasure to introduce our uh, guest speaker, Dr. Ravindra Baliga, um, who is the inaugural director of cardio-oncology uh, center of excellence and professor of internal medicine and cardiology at the Ohio State University uh, Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Baliga earned his medical degree from St. John's Medical College, Bangalore University in India, and his MBA from University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And um, uh, he continued to um, uh, do his fellowship in cardiology at Royal Prose Graduate School of Medicine, University of London, and a clinical and research fellowship in cardiology at Brigham, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Baliga was a research fellow at the Harvard Medical School in Boston and completed two more advanced fellowships in cardiac specialties, one at Boston University Medical Center and one at Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Dr. Baliga was the editor-in-chief for Heart Failure Clinics of North America, is the CME editor for the American College of Cardiology, and is a section editor of the CardioSource Review Journal, and the section editor for the American College of Cardiology, Cardiovascular Imaging. In addition, Dr. Baliga is the editor-in-chief of the popular textbook, Practical Cardiology. And uh, he also is the co-author for the cardio-oncology textbook, the ICOS cardio-oncology textbook, which uh, I've used a few times. Um, he was elected a fellow of the International Cardio-Oncology Society, a fellow of Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh and the American College of Cardiology. Dr. Baliga's clinical interests include cardio-oncology and heart failure. He is the recipient of the American College of Cardiology Gifted Educator Award in 2017 and the OSU College of Medicine LSI Preceptor of the Year 2021. Thank you, Dr. Baliga, for uh, presenting for, uh, with us today and over to you. Thank you for the kind introduction, Dr. Arbune. And uh, I think it's a recorded talk, which Brian may have. I would like to thank Dr. Andrew Caldijay and the Kentucky ACC for inviting me to present at the 17th annual meeting plenary session. It's a great honor and I will cherish this maestro recognition. Today, I will talk about door to GDMT time, connecting the dots between recent advances in heart failure GDMT and cardio-oncology. My disclosures are, uh, I have a podcast called God Knowledge Talk. Uh, many of the podcasts are on cardio-oncology and I'm a, a, one of the editors for the International Cardio-Oncology Society Board Review Man Manual. Cancer-related cardiomyopathy is well-recognized in this terrific review by Dr. Jeremy Slivnik, one of our fellows, uh, 
we know that the incidence of heart failure with chemotherapy-induced uh, cardiomyopathy could be as high as 25%. And the burden continues to evolve as more and more medications in uh, oncology are emerging. The four pillars for the treatment of heart failure are now ARNIs, beta blockers, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, and SGLT2 inhibitors. The early mortality in heart failure, based on the Framingham Heart Study, is 10% at 30 days. So within the first month, we lose 10% of our patients. At the end of at the end of one year, as high as 25%, and uh, and at five-year follow-up, it's as high as 50%. The, the mortality continues to be high and is in a standstill and is as high as cancer. So our cardio-oncology patients have now two conditions which increased the burden of mortality. What is the mode of death in heart failure? In NYHA class two and class three heart failure, sudden death is the main reason for people dying, as high as 60% die of sudden death. It's only in class four heart failure that pump function or CHF is the predominant underlying cause of death. And this data is from the Merit CHF study, which was published in the Lancet. Even in patients who are completely asymptomatic with left ventricular systolic dysfunction, the mortality is higher, and 40% uh, of the, these are attributed to coronary artery disease, uh, of which 43% die of sudden death. In our clinical practice, we tend to monitor left ventricular ejection fraction this is a very elegant study in Jack, which showed that carvedilol uh, improved left ventricular ejection fraction in anthracycline-induced cardiomyopathy. But I would like to emphasize that the benefits of GDMT is due to improvement in sudden death and left ventricular pump dysfunction. Beta blockers uh, improve mortality in heart failure as we all know, by reducing not only total mortality, but also cardiovascular mortality, both due to sudden death and death from pump failure. Similarly, in the FSS study, aplerinone reduced sudden death by 21%. In the paradigm heart failure, there was a 20% reduction in sudden death with ARNI and a 21% reduction in heart failure death. So the improvement in LV function is not the only reason for improvement with uh, the four horsemen, but also due to a reduction in sudden death. In the With SGLT2 inhibitors, in the DAPA heart failure, dapagliflozin uh, improved mortality by reducing ventricular arrhythmias, uh, reducing the incidence of uh, resuscitated cardiac arrest and sudden death and I'd like to thank Dr. Muthu Vaduganayadan from the Brigham and Women's Hospital for sharing the slide with me. So the, if, if a, a patient with HEFREF 
receive no therapy at the end of two years, there's a 35% mortality. But with the treatment of these four new horsemen, the, the mortality is reduced at the end of two years to single digits. It's still pretty high at 9.5%, but the relative risk reduction is nearly 73%, and the absolute risk reduction is 25%, and the number needed to treat is four. And this is work from Greg Fonero, and I thank him for sharing this slide with me. Interestingly, Daniel Cardinal in Jack of 2010 and investigators showed that in adramycin cardiomyopathy, early administration of GDMT, there were better responders to left ventricular ejection fraction. In fact, if therapy was started early in the first two months, there was a 64% improvement in uh, ejection fraction. As therapy was delayed, there were, the, res the responders decreased. And at the end of six months, there were no responders. And this is one of the early studies which emphasized the importance of early therapy with GDMT. In the Ephesus trial, when they looked at aplerinone, an early aplerinone administration within a week improved outcomes, including sudden death, whereas there was no benefit when aplerinone was initiated after a week. In the Pioneer Heart Failure study, David Morrow and colleagues looked at outcomes and they found that the effect of RNA, that is sacubitral valsartan, was early and the curve separated out as early as 12 days. And you can see here that it's that the uh, the efficacy lasted through eight weeks. And when you look at uh, uh, NT-proBNP in, in the same study, the, uh, the curves started separating out as early as one week. So the benefits are early with our ARNI. And this is an elegant paper in the NEJM by the Pioneer Heart Failure investigators. Similarly, in the Paradigm Heart Failure, you can see within 10 days of randomization, the curves are separating out. And at the end of 30 days, they're nicely separated out. So a lot of the benefit is early. And the, the reason for this is, is, is you can see that the NT-proBNP and the troponin T values, the difference between the two groups is apparent within four weeks and was sustained at eight months. Another group of investigators showed that with ARNI, plasma aldosterone, plasma endothelin, and NT-proBNP all improved within day 21. So, but it was as early as one week. So the key take home is early therapy is beneficial. And there are papers now showing both in vitro and in vivo and mice models that RNAs are beneficial in chemotherapy-induced cardiomyopathy. And there have been case series where using RNA in heart failure due to chemotherapy, that they're very favorable. More recently, our neighbors from Indiana had an abstract in the ECC showing the benefits of RNA in, uh, in both in um, 
uh, adromycin and trastuzumab induced cardiomyopathy. Clearly, we need more clinical study or large registry data to validate these important findings. Another key takeaway is based on the Paragon heart failure, the FDA has approved RNAs for patients with HFPEF. Now, the new kids on the block are SGLT2 inhibitor benefits, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, and the benefits are substantial. The, in, in the DAPA heart failure, there was a 49% reduction in events by day 28. In the soloist acute heart failure, there was a 39% reduction in events by day 28. And in the emperor reduced, the benefits reached statistical significance as early as 12 days after randomization. I'd like to talk, thank uh, Dr. Greg Fonero from UCLA for sharing the slide with me. And when you look at the uh, Emperor Preserved, the survival curves separate out as early as 18 days. And so the benefits of, of uh, MRAs, RNAs, and HGLT2 inhibitors are right off the bat within the first month. And more recently, there have been papers and abstracts uh, sh uh, showing the efficacy of SGLT2 inhibitors in, <clears throat> in chemotherapy-induced cardiomyopathy. In this very elegant paper in Jack um, Heart Failure, they found when SGLT2 inhibitors were started when the blood pressure was soft, there was actually a slight increase in systolic blood pressure when the blood pressure was less than 110. There was no change when the systolic blood pressure was between 110 and 130. And there was a slight reduction in blood pressure when the blood pressure was greater than 130. So the effect of SGLT2 inhibitors is bimodal. Uh, and so one must not hesitate to start therapy when the blood pressure is soft. This is no different for, with carvedilol. In the Copernicus trial, when patients were pre-treated um, were treated with carvedilol, when the pre-treatment blood pressure was between 85 to 95, there was no decline in blood pressure. In fact, there was a slight increase. In fact, if you look at this upper panel of this graph, there's an increase in blood pressure when the blood pressure is soft. In the lower panel, it shows in all comers, the blood pressure is reduced. But, and again, I think because of its alpha-1 blocking properties, it's got very favorable tubular glomerular effects, which will allow it to have this bimodal effect on, on blood pressure. Milton Packer and John McMurray have argued that the step one in the management of uh, uh, HEFREF involves starting beta blockers because of its antiarrhythmogenic uh, efficacy and SGLT2 inhibitors. And I would argue that both these classes of drugs also improve soft blood pressure. Uh, and if the blood pressure increases, then it's easier to roll out the RNAs and the mineral corticoid receptor antagonists. Uh, whereas Greg Fonero, Javid Butler, and um, Stephen Green, in a very elegant editorial in um, our viewpoint in uh, Jack Cardiology earlier this year, have argued that, we, uh, that RNA beta blockers, mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, and SGLT2 inhibitors should all be started right off the bat on day one at the lowest dose, and then to titrate over the next few days as tolerated. 
And as I have discussed, the mortality in the first month is 10% with at least with HEFREF. So it, it is really important to start early and, and tighten it up to max dose GDMT uh, uh, as tolerated, preferably within a month because it saves lives. In fact, the key takeaway from today's talk is door to GDMT time and door to max dose GDMT time. In fact, my, the, uh, the, I would argue door to early GDMT therapy in LV dysfunction is vital. Being tardy may be deadly and fatal. Early to start and early to max dose GDMT therapy is the key, particularly in those with an, ele an elevated BNP. This will save lives much more than many. In fact, I would argue that it is really important to educate our referring docs, uh, cardiologists, uh, uh, hematologists, and oncologists to initiate GDMT right off the bat uh, because it may take a, a while to get into your clinic. In fact, I try to see the patients the same week after I get the referral for um, uh, HEFPEF and HEFREF, uh, particularly in our chemotherapy-induced cardiomyopathy patients, because uh, time is the key and we may save lives uh, right off the bat. Um, often, uh, if the patient can be seen, uh, encourage the oncologist and the hematologist to start at least beta blockers and um, and mineral corticoid receptor antagonists uh, uh, if, if there's no kidney dysfunction. And um, many of the patients are diabetic, so it's easy to get approval for SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, as you all know, the, the biggest challenge is getting uh, 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 approval for some of these newer medications from the insurance companies. Sooner or later, we've, we will all have to have a pharmacy-driven, pharmacist-driven GDMT clinics, just like we have clinics for anticoagulation. And the GDMT clinics will help titrate the dose um, of these patients uh, to maximum dose, so they're on optimal therapy. Um, and so this is the future. Um, I hope you have found this uh, thought-provoking and has made a difference on how you will manage your heart failure patients in the uh, from now onwards. Thank you. I would like to thank Dr. Andrew Collise and the Kentucky ACC for inviting me to present at this plenary session for the annual meeting. It's a great honor and I, I cherish this maestro recognition. All right, that was a great talk. Uh, do we have any questions? Good morning, Dr. Baliga. Thank you very much for, for joining us. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure. Great pleasure to have you here today. Uh, um, you know, so <clears throat> it, clearly, the, this is a renaissance period for 
any heart failure patient. Uh, we have all these great drugs that um, essentially um, short of our beta blocker and ACE inhibitor in and of itself studies, now we have these numbers that are um, superior to anything else we've been using so far, including SGLT2 inhibitors and such. Um, <clears throat> I suppose a lot of questions may come from just simple fact of maybe um, without getting into too much detail, which chemotherapeutic agents are um, obviously, you know, including our institution, we do have uh, a allocated sonographer and, and such for the Markey Center for our Cancer Center. Uh, short of screening everybody, um, anything specific you would look into any particular chemotherapeutic agent that is um, more significant than, than others. I mean, some obviously because of myocardial dysfunction, you start looking for strain patterns and, and such. Others related to um, to arrhythmogenic components and such. But any any sort of quick thoughts on particular chemotherapeutic agents that you pay attention to more than others? So I, I'm going to do sort of um, give one or two nuggets on what is seen in my practice. You know, if you look at all the old papers, they say adramycin-induced cardiotoxicity is a bad prognosis, but that was based on data pre-GDMT, you know, and I, I, in my opinion that if you start therapy with GDMT, even with, um, uh, you know, even the, uh, um, Dr. Rubison cardiotoxicity, we can do it right off the bat that we can make a difference. And the key is, is to get the oncologist to call you the same week so that you can get, you can initiate therapy. The second challenge uh, I see in my practice is, yes, the EF has gone down by 10 points, but I still want to continue the chemotherapy. And uh, we, we, we work with the, with the oncologist because sometimes, you know, we can, we can handle a lower EF, but, you know, they may die of the cancer. So um, uh, we, we kind of make the surveillance more frequent when we, we do that so that, you know, every, every six to eight weeks, we'll do the echoes and we will take the risk, fully, the patient fully knowing, where, uh, knowing that there are benefit risk uh, uh, and reward in these issues. With the uh, checkpoint inhibitors, um, you're quite right, Dr. Kaldeje, that we have to uh, look at a panel of biomarkers, ECHOs one, strain is al almost another one. We routinely report strain in our ECHO lab at, at, at Ohio State. So um, for us, it's, it's, it's standard of care. And I would encourage you all to report strain in all patients with heart failure because you know, of all the benefits with the new GDMTs, we also, if, if people are on checkpoint inhibitors, we do um, uh, cardiac BNP and uh, high sensitivity troponins uh, in all the patients. And then uh, if there is some concern of uh, any changes in these biomarkers, we will do a cardiac MRI too. And, and, and believe it or not, just garden variety EKG. I remember a year ago, we had this patient who was started on a checkpoint inhibitor the, and the oncologist, she was following him in clinic uh, and um, she looked at the EKG, there was a prolongation of the PR interval. 
and she stopped the checkpoint inhibitors and, and referred the patient to my clinic. By the time I saw the patient in clinic in five days, the, uh, and I was, in, I was covering the hospital in service, but I, I saw this patient as an add-on. I, I ran down, saw the patient, the patient said, oh, they stopped it because I was, feel, I was feeling lightheaded. I no longer feel lightheaded, I feel great. And, uh, but then I asked my nurse to do uh, an EKG and I, I, used to, I found a two is to one heart block. So I admitted the patient, we pulsed her with solimedrol, just like we do with a heart transplant patient, gave a high dose and then a taper steroids. And we watched the patient for a week and the two to one block resolved for about three to four days. Uh, and it was, it was normal. And then it went back into heart block. And finally, then we got EP involved. And then we did a, a, a treadmill test and found that the patient was chronotropically incompetent and then we had to put a pacemaker. So we are learning along the way and even EKG is a really important biomarker in, in, in these patients. So as you know that more and more of these drugs are, uh, you know, the, the, it's rare with any particular drug, but as oncologists use more and more of these drugs, we're gonna see more and more down the pike uh, with, uh, with, uh, with checkpoint inhibitors and immune kinase, uh, immunologics in cancer. Thank you. Great. I have one question to follow up on a couple of things that you mentioned during the talk, Dr. Baliga. Uh, as in, uh, you rightly pointed out that uh, we should start treating patients with asymptomatic LV dysfunction as well as they have high mortality. And uh, you also mentioned uh, the slide that um, in the percentage of responders uh, after anthracycline in terms of how many respond to therapy, like after six months, uh, there were no, no responders. So I... Uh, um, I uh, see a lot of patients who are two couple years post anthracyclines and they would have reduced LV function and uh, they don't have any heart failure symptoms, completely asymptomatic. EF is like 40, 45. What do you do in those patients? Yeah, so, you know, as you all know, in heart failure, the, the big challenge is can we discontinue the drugs once we think they're stable? And I remember this was way back when Peter Brockers, when we started using it way back in early 2000s or late 90s. The, um, I had this marathon runner uh, whose ejection fraction went from 30 to 60% with non ischemic and cardiomyopathy with the beta blockers. So his GP said, oh, his EF is normal. Let's stop the medication. And guess what? I saw him six months back in clinic and it was down to 20%, okay? Then I had this 21-year-old uh, patient with uh, non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, probably due to myocarditis, and her EF went from 30% to 60%. And you know, at 21, she just stopped the medication herself. She didn't con consult anyone. Okay. And when I saw her six months later, her ejection fraction was at 60%. So what I'm trying to say is the natural history of systolic dysfunction varies, and so we. Uh, I tell this, I, I, I discuss this with the patient and I don't stop therapy because of that. In fact, you will see that even uh, ICDs, even if the EF improves substantially, uh, EP will, will put an, when the ICD is end of life, they will put another ICD because you still have the residual risk of sudden death and mortality. In fact, uh, HFSA and ACCHA are talking now. They don't want us to use the term 
um, recovered function, LV with recovered function. They want us to use the term LV with improved heart function because th there is the ongoing risk of cardiovascular mortality and sudden death. So my thoughts are, in fact, uh, in your patient to ask specifically, I would, on your patient, I would start her or him on an SGLT2 inhibitor. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I tend to start these patients as in, uh, like I, I do see patients and then I get questions from referings like, hey, in cardio-oncology, these patients, what are you, are you going to, they've been asymptomatic, they've completed their therapy for two years now and their EF is 45% because nobody checked it, right? As in, uh, we're trying to raise awareness for uh, kind of monitoring LV function after anthracyclines and people have just not checked it. Or they've gotten their last dose and two years later, nobody has checked it and they see EF of 45%. So I do, I still encourage if they have any room, if they have any slightest high uh, blood pressure and any other indications and start them on beta blockers and ACE inhibitors. Um, Follow-up question. Uh, and one yeah, more sorry. point is that on that same vein, the, the Danish people looked at uh, trastuzumab or Herceptin mm -hmm. and from a registry data, they found that the risk of uh, heart, uh, heart side effects was there up to nine years after discontinuation. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, the risk is ongoing, you know? The yeah, my my trastuzumab patients, I never take them off beta blockers and ACE inhibitors. I've been here just for a year or so, but in that much time, it's, uh, we have um, uh, initiated therapy on patients, even with asymptomatic LV dysfunction with HER2 inhibitors. Um, Follow-up question um, on therapy uh, in these patients. Uh, do you use um, uh, Entresto or uh, Secubrovalsartan in these patients who have asymptomatic LV dysfunction and just a drop in the GLS. They don't, as in we know from Sucker trial, uh, that any drop in the GLS, if we start treating them with uh, medications, but they looked at only beta blockers and ACE inhibitors, and they uh, they, they had reduction in the e, drop in the EF. So not many people uh, had drop in the EF of the treatment. So, but that was mostly beta blockers and ACE inhibitors. What are your thoughts about Entresto in that population? Drop in GLS, but normal EF. So as you know, the biggest challenge with the ARNIs is um, hypotension, you know? And, and, and the bigger challenge is the insurance company approving the prescription in someone with this. But in February, the FDA has approved it. So now it's mainly, if he can, if he can jump through these two, jump this hurdle, with uh, getting it approved. And I would argue, in fact, I would argue that I think Arnie's is going to be uh, uh, the foundation for uh, HEFPEF along with SGLT2. And I also think Arnie would be foundation. You know, now ACE inhibitors, if you ask the nephrologist, the, diabetic nephropathy or any kidney dysfunction for them, the foundation is um, uh, ACE inhibitors. But I think once STL, once ARNIs are affordable, ARNIs is going to be the foundation for kidney dysfunction, uh, particularly in diabetics. In fact, if you look at, there was a circulation paper and I can send that paper uh, to you, is that the, the, uh, the GFR improvements are so much better with ARNI, that is with uh, uh, psychobetal Varsatin when compared to uh, garden variety uh, ACE inhibitors. So to answer your question, in, if you know, in five years, we won't be using ACE inhibitors in our patients. Sure, great, thank you. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, 
uh, do we have any questions in the chat? Let's see. Do we have any more questions? Because I, I can keep on going with my questions on cardiology, but I'll let others ask if we have any more questions and how we are doing on time, Brian. We are okay on time right now. Great. So uh, here is one question from uh, Steve Leung. And I just saw it. How often do you use uh, CMR and what do you look for? Do you look for strain or do you look for ECV uh, on CMR? In, uh, I'm guessing this is for cardio-oncology population. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, when, uh, you, know, I, you know, at Ohio State, we were one of the pioneers in the CMR program and we are very visibly. So initially, I, I, I embraced it a lot, you know, uh, but you know the problem of CMR is um, portability. You can't, you know, reproducibility in the office. And if you talk to my CMR colleagues, they they love it. Okay, and and uh, and it is a great it's a great tool to in addition to echocardiogram. But if you, if you notice, there were two papers recently in the European Heart Journal. They found that um, CMR has its limitations apart from you know getting them into a scanner. The the uh, the spatial resolution is so much better than echocardiography, but the temporal resolution is not. Uh, in fact, they say they they say that even for all these uh, uh, MRI parameters like ECV or T1 and T2 mapping, um, they uh, the recommendation of the paper in the European Heart Journal is the same reader should see it. You know, uh, and in fact, even uh, we all know in echo, even if the same reader intra-observer variation is ten percent, if they don't see the previous echo. So what we have made in our program, our echo director agreed with it, is that whenever one of our patients with LV dysfunction and EF is called, it's really important for our echo reader to compare it with the previous echo because when you keep it side by side, then you can give the trajectory. Otherwise, if you throw in a number each time, then you know you, you, that intra-observer variation is as high as 10% in, in studies. And that makes it very difficult to practice cardio-oncology because we are on the fringes of LV dysfunction, so as to speak. And so to answer your question, um, MRI, T1 mapping, T2 mapping has evolved in the last five years. It's only getting better. But I think there's a lot of the, I think the two big challenges in addition to the, these new parameters uh, is, um, is um, to get an MRI which is portable. And we use a lot of uh, MR, CMR in amyloid because it's so much better than echo. Great, yeah. I I I tend to order a lot of as in my with my training in advanced imaging and cardio oncology. I tend to order a lot of uh, MRs, and uh, we do use a lot. And um, MRI and your first question that Andy Kaloje had asked about that, and when you mentioned about that patient who developed heart block and had been on immune checkpoint inhibitors, did you guys get an MRI to see if he had any myocarditis? Yeah. So we got an MRI and that confirmed the myocarditis. I should have mentioned that, yeah. Okay. But yeah. I can tell you, I've had patients, we have done an MRI and the MRI is stone cold normal, okay? Mm -hmm. 
And the thing, and the thing with enzymes, you know, if you miss the window, you might not get that huge spike in high sensitivity trope, you know, mm -hmm. by the time the patient complains to you. So you might, you might not get that huge spike. And, and there have been cases where the tropes BNP and MR have been normal, but mm -hmm. they'll be down or the strain has changed and we have pulsed them with steroids, but you know, because the mortality is high, you yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, Tom Nealon from MGH had this thing about mm -hmm. PVCs. You know, I've had PVCs with chemotherapy, which our EP colleagues have actually ablated them. Okay. And then the EF has improved. And then we have gone back and rechallenged them with chemo. Mm -hmm. I've had three patients who had developed biogemony and their PVC burden was less, more than 20,000. So mm -hmm. our, our EP guys did the ablation, EF improved. We restarted the chemo, especially maintenance uh, trastuzumab have been our hurt to receptor positive patients. Hmm. So MRI is great. I know the imaging people don't want to hear it, but even that has limitations, you know what I mean? And so good old clinical, you know, uh, uh, intuition is as helpful as anything else, you know? Sure. <laughs> Do we, <laughs> let's see. Checking the chat, we don't have any more questions. Uh, do you uh, one last question, and uh, I will uh, see if we are good on time. Uh, do you re-challenge the patients who have developed myocarditis with immune checkpoint inhibitors? You know that's a great question, and it depends on the oncologist. You know, and um, um, many of them don't want to. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, but then, you know, it all depends on where the patient is in that cancer tra trajectory. And at some, at some point, you know, the oncologist may go ahead and or the patient may choose to do it. But it's, I can tell you that sometimes when you re-challenge it, the patients don't survive. And then we don't know whether they pass because of the immune checkpoint or whether they pass due to the cancer. You know what I mean? Right, right, yeah. And anecdotally, once we lose them, it's very difficult to you know, uh, go back. I'm very hesitant to go back into the record once a pa you know, once the patient says deceased. It's kind yeah. of because then it's only anecdotal. But that's the challenge with uh, patients who we lose. You know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Great. Um, I don't have any. Listen, I am not going to ask any more questions. Uh, if we don't have any more questions in the audience, uh, I'll let it over. Turn it over to you, Chris, and or Brian, and uh, what? All right. Well, thank you, everybody. The next session we do, or we are going into a break, so please visit the exhibit hall and interact with the exhibitors. Next session starts at ten fifteen. Thank you for the for the invitation. I'm honored. Thank you. Thank you for having uh, being here. Thanks. <laughs>